0: Welcome to the Travel Diary, Learning Journey to Human Mind, Episode 8. Episode 8 covers Topic 8 of the Intro to Psychology 2 unit. And um, the topic was Cross-Cultural Psychology which is, I think, a relatively new development in psychology, because psychology has predominantly been a a Western discipline. And even today, much of the research that's done is done in Western countries. And so there are certain questions which naturally arise as you start to extend some of the psychological concepts to other cultures and other countries. So first, what is the definition of culture? Culture in this unit was described, was defined as being the shared rules that govern behavior of a group of people and which enables its members to coexist and to survive. And culture is generally quite stable, but it does change and evolve over time. And this is known as a cultural shift. In the unit, we talked about how culture is not nationality, it's not citizenship, it's not race, which is a social construct. Uh, the culture, of course, can give meaning to the idea of race, and it's not ethnicity. And ethnicity is, I think, basically described as being some sort of um, Marker by which a person might define his or her in-group based upon um, language, culture, historical origins, etc. Now there's a distinction between cultural psychologists and cross-cultural psychologists, So cross-cultural psychologists. Um, and I think that was also, in another unit, they talked about it also in terms of, um, sort of anthropologists like psychological anthropologists. Cultural psychologists study the, way, the ways in which people are affected by culture. In comparison, cross-cultural psychologists compare uh, across behavior across different cultures. They look at how some of the universal aspects that extends across cultures and some of the differences that uh, extends across cultures. So, there are two approaches when psychologists do field research. These are known as EMIC perspective and an ETIC perspective. EMIC E M I C, ETIC E T I C. The EMIC perspective means that you're kind of going into a culture. It's a culture specific research where you focus on and you take the perspective of, of, a, part of a particular cultural group and you examine psychological aspects of that group. For example, if you were doing research on um, recent um, refugees from Syria into Australia, uh, and then you went in and you studied that particular group, that would be an example of an emic perspective. An etic perspective is cross-cultural, so it looks for commonalities or differences across cultures in relation to a particular theory. And so it it assumes that someone within a culture is too enmeshed in that culture to really have an objective view. So it takes an external view of the observer looking down and interpreting cultures uh, theoretically, at least, impartially. And we also talk about different kinds of theoretical orientations in cross-cultural psychology. There are three different uh, orientations which kind of span the spectrum on one end you have you have absolutism and this is the idea that all psychological variables are the same in all cultures and that you can uh, access these cultures these constructs using the identical methods and and instruments relativism goes the other extreme and says well all psychological constructs are culturally influenced they're all culture bound, and therefore you cannot compare between cultures. And then you have the in between orientation, which is universalism the idea that while all psychological variables are common between cultures, cultures do still influence the, the development and the manifestation of these psychological characteristics. So you can make comparisons, but you have to do so cautiously, and you might have to change and adapt your methods and your instruments in order to reflect the the underlying cultures. And there are different kinds of uh, cross-cultural research studies that uh, can be done. Cross-cultural comparison studies compares two or more cultures in relation to a particular psychological variable. Cross-cultural validation studies looks at whether a particular psychological variable in one culture can, can have meaning and can be applied to another culture. And there are also unpackaging studies. And these, where, the, where there are cultural differences, these try to explain why. Now, there are some unique challenges when you do cross-cultural research. Uh, before we outline these, uh, we consider some of the um, the general characteristics that characterize good psychological research and this will come up again i think in other units and other topics because this is something that i've heard repeated many many times kind of a mantra i think in psychological studies so these four characteristics first of all you need to have a theoretical framework it can't just be an ad hoc thing it should be enmeshed within a system of of ideas um, reflecting a broad range of observations, it should incl- it should involve a standardized procedure. So, you know these things, including um, you know control groups, randomized um, assignments of participants, and stuff like that. So that it's easy, it's easier to reproduce, and it's more meaningful when you're comparing it with other studies. It should have a generalizability, uh, which means that it should be able to, you should be able to infer from your study behaviours in the wider population, in the wider community. And finally, it should involve objective measurement. So some of the problems include the final two of these, generalizability and objective measurement. First, there's the problem of whether in, uh, when you get data from a study from one culture, And then from another culture, can these be interpreted in an equivalent basis? Also, when you take a sample from one culture and a sample from another culture, how do you ensure that these are equivalent samples? The problem also of interpreting results. um, How do you interpret results unless you have a strong background knowledge of the cultural frameworks in which behaviors take place? And it's interesting because they, you know, they talk about sort of um, culture-sensitive psychology, and um, in, also in, in um, relation to clinical psychologists. So I was listening to a number of podcasts where there are uh, psychologists where they're doing their practice around a particular cultural group, which might not, might not be their own cultural group. And these clinical psychologists out of their way to try to immerse themselves in the culture of their uh, clientele so for example they go and watch movies um, in that of that culture and they listen to music and read books and learn the language and travel and all that kind of stuff so these are all ways that uh, clinical psychologists are trying to overcome some of the, some of the um, problems that could arise where a certain profession has a kind of a monoculture and you're dealing in a multicultural society. There are also problems of researcher bias. So this is the need to acknowledge ethnocentrism uh, of your own theoretical background and your own judgments, not just assuming that your way of thinking is the correct way of thinking and also the problem of sensitive issues because when you're doing research in other cultures, often, especially uh, with minority groups, with disadvantaged groups, certain issues uh, can be quite sensitive and they can be history as well of problematic uh, psychological studies done in the past, so there might be a lack of trust as well in um, psychologists going to the field in these areas. We also talked about the different ways that cultures vary the different dimensions on which there is a, a spectrum within cultural groups so one example is the diff- the relationship between time and culture and they talk about monochronic cultures and polychronic cultures the distinction being that monochronic cultures in in monochronic cultures time is divided in, in a linear fashion it's closely regulated One is it's important to be punctual. Activities are scheduled. It's more future oriented. It's more kind of serial in terms of you know doing one thing at a time and then another thing and another thing. Polychronic uh, cultures, in contrast, they view time as being sort of a fluid thing. It's less closely regulated. Being punctual and and following deadlines and schedules is not as important, and also the past. There's more of a, a focus in the past and more the, more the idea of doing multiple tasks at the same time. So examples of monochronic cultures are the sort of most Western cultures, such as in Australia, the US, and, and in Europe, and, or certain parts of Europe, I should perhaps say. And polychronic cultures include parts of the Middle East, uh, South America. Um, the Aboriginal societies and the Maori societies in Australia and New Zealand, respectively. The second dimension is uh, emotion and culture. The appropriateness of displaying certain emotions in certain social situations, which are known as cultural display rules. There is a kind of relationship as well uh, between the weather and emotion, because. The further south you go, and this is both within countries and between countries, the the warmer the weather, the more emotion is generally displayed. And also, there's been some research suggesting that in hotter weathers, there's also increase increases in violent crime. So, generally, I think the idea, I assume, is that um, with increased temperatures, you get sort of increased emotion and perhaps less um, impulse control. So for example, Southern European cultures and Mediterranean cultures tend to be more expressive than people from Northern Europe, you know, England, um, places like that. I think the English are in particular quite famous for bottling up their, their emotion. Though maybe this is slightly advanced just in comparison to some of their more um, emotional neighbors. The third dimension, interpersonal space. So the idea of how close you are in proximity to someone else when you're interacting with them. So this is divided into intimate space. So this is the closest bubble of space. And this is reserved for very close friends and lovers and family members. Then you've got the social and consultative spaces, uh, which you use the distance that you use when you're interacting socially with a stranger or maybe an acquaintance. And finally, a public space. So this is the, the bubble of space that extends the furthest out with complete strangers, and it's not really designed for social interaction. And there's also the idea of conversational distance, of referring to how close people stand um, when they are talking. The next dimension is context and culture. So in high context cultures, uh, people look at all the non-verbal cues and signs to decode real meaning, these cultures tend to emphasize interpersonal uh, relationships. They rely more on intuition and interpretation than on the logic. And so people from the Middle East, um, Asia, Africa, and South America are supposed to be high in high-context cultures. Low-context cultures tend to take things more literally. They tend to pay close attention to what people actually say and do, and, and to interpret these literally without so much attention uh, paid to the accompanying circumstances or the context. And they rely more, they focus more on facts and logic and less on relationships. So much of the West has a low context culture. And as you can see, there is a relationship between context and time because Low-context cultures are usually monochronic, while high-context cultures are usually polychronic. The second last dimension is tight versus loose cultures. So in tight cultures, deviations from norms are not tolerated. So I think Japan would be for me a very clear example of a of a tight culture. Uh, Germany as well, I assume. And loose cultures, well, that's where norms are less clear and more. Uh, deviation is tolerated, uh, Thailand being an example of loose culture, and you see that in loose cultures, uh, minority groups such as LGBT community tend to be more tolerated. Finally, uh, last but not least, there's individualism versus collectivism. So this is fairly straightforward. It I think the crux is how you kind of define the idea of self and in individualistic cultures, which is mostly so sort of Western cultures. Uh, the self is really separate and independent from the group, while in collectivist societies, the self is, is deeply enmeshed within the group. And that kind of reminds me of um, a study I, I read about where they looked at self-reported measures of, ha- of happiness. And there was much greater individual happiness in individualistic cultures rather than collectivist cultures, which in some ways is a little bit counterintuitive because sometimes having that society is a sort of kind of a social buttress against negative effect and, and stress and, and trauma and stuff like that. And being, I guess, too individualistic can lead to sort of social isolation. And also there was a very close correlation between happiness or life satisfaction, and the number of years the country that you've been living in has enjoyed uh, continuous democracy. It was an extremely high correlation. I think from memory it was like 0. 0.8. So this was like really, really strong. I think one of the strongest correlations you can find in psychology. So the lecturer uh, distinguished multiculturalism from pluralism. So with the former, it's a situation where you have multiple cultures that exist within a country. Uh, the latter, in contrast, is not just having l- lots of cultures existing within the country, but a general acceptance that they have a right to retain their cultural heritage and to coexist. Culture shock, uh, as you might expect, uh, refers to that feeling of anxiety and um, kind of negative effect that people feel. When they are from one culture and they encounter and they have to adapt to the the practices, the rules, the expectations of another culture, and they define four phases. Psychologists define four phases: the honeymoon phase, which is the the excitement that you feel when you first encounter another another culture; the disenchantment phase, where you grow disillusioned; you might even feel quite um, upset. Then the beginning resolution phase where there is a kind of a rebound in terms of confidence and you start to gain a bit of understanding. And finally, the effective functioning phase where you you, are, you learn and you adjust and you learn how to fit in. We also talked about the difference between, and, and this took me a little bit of a while to figure it out, acculturation and Inculturation, so acculturation, acculturation is when one group uh, comes into contact with another. Often, it comes into contact with a a major group, a dominant cultural group. So, for example, acculturative stress is one of the types of stress. So, you know, if you come from another country, you migrate to to a country with a completely different culture then you're going through this uh culturative um stress. Inculturation with E N, C U L T U R A T I O N spelling means the actual process of absorbing and internalizing the rules of your own culture, the culture that you were you're born in and which sort of happens naturally through your socialization and from your parents and all that kind of stuff and from the society more broadly. Now uh Acculturation, so the, the former was, the pronunciations are too similar. So, acculturation with an A is divided into assimilation, where you just get absorbed completely into the dominant culture and you abandon your, your own culture. You've got fusion, where the two are combined into, to create something completely different. And then alternation, where you, have, you keep them separate and you alternate depending on the situation. So, for example, if you're dealing with your parents or your Grandparents, you might go back to your traditional culture, and then when you go to workplace, you might uh, revert to the dominant culture. We also talked about how cultural stereotypes can lead to three distortions of reality. First of all, it can create a greater sense of us versus them. Second, it creates selective thinking, confirmation bias. And um, Third, it assumes that the other group uh, is hom- com- is more homogeneous. You allow for less individual differences in art groups. Xenophobia is descri- is defined as the fear hatred of foreigners or anything foreign or unfamiliar. Ethnocentrism, which we've already mentioned, means a tendency to view other cultures by the the um the standards and the barometer of your own culture. Now, prejudice can be reduced at three levels, the macro level, which involves government and laws. So, for example, if the government passes an anti-discrimination law, that's an example of trying to reduce prejudice at a macro level. Then you've got institutional levels, uh, such as in universities. The psychology level, which is sort of, I guess, on understanding the processes behind uh, prejudice and at the individual level. There are a few theories about how to bring groups together and to reduce polarization. One is known as the contact hypothesis that the more contact there is between two groups, the more likely that um, the barriers and prejudices between the groups will be reduced. Though um, I don't have, I don't recall it in this unit, but in the other uh, reading, uh, I heard that it's not enough to have contact. You need contact uh, in a certain context, for example, equal power. If you're in a contact, if they have contact and there's a, a huge disparity in power, it's not so helpful. Um, and also if you can have some sort of superordinate goal, if you, if there is some sort of common interest in both parties are uh, working towards that common interest, it's also a way of bringing it together. There was a famous study done on this. And, um, unfortunately my memory fails me, but it involves, I think, involved, I think school kids and they were sent to some exper- psychological experiment of a camp. And they were forced to kind of form groups and to become very competitive and um, antisocial towards each other. And then they looked at ways how they could bring them together. And the best way was actually to have a common goal and they have to work together. They can't both. Both groups cannot separately achieve the end. They need to work, uh, pool their resources together. So in Australia... uh, well, my, my course, my university is in Australia, and so one of the major focuses was on what they call indigenous psychology, which is um, psychological studies of the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait, Torres Strait um, Islander communities. So there are some guidelines for doing research uh, on, on these groups. So they, there is the idea of reciprocity, which means actually balancing the benefits against potential risks. For me, that doesn't sound like reciprocity, but that's what reciprocity means. Respect, which means affirming the right to have different beliefs, customs, and aspirations. That makes more sense. Equality, treat all participants as equals. Responsibility, which means ensuring the research does no harm. Survival and protection, which uh, means that you have to use your research to reinforce the social the, the social and cultural bonds between the indigenous people and their communities and you have to respect their right or to have their own distinct culture and then this overarching value of spirit and integrity indigenous psychology is defined as being psychological research which is not imposed as it has been in the past that is influenced by the cultural contexts in which people live which is developed from within the culture and which results in locally relevant knowledge. So, there was a psychological um, article which identified the psychological assumptions underlying individualism and universality as being particularly problematic for the study of indigenous people. Um, there is a great divide, I guess, the idea is between individualism and collectivism. And uh, it's one of the uh, dimensions on which uh, culture differ. But uh, perhaps for psychological variables, the idea is this difference is more important than the others. And since so much of psychological ideas and thoughts have developed in a context of individualism, a lot of it doesn't really apply to collectivist societies and when you try to apply it becomes very uh, problematic. We also talked about the need for psychologists to develop what is known as cultural competence which refers to the psychologist's ability to communicate and to behave in a way that is effective when interacting with people from other cultures, being able to understand them and also being aware of one's own uh, cultural background and assumptions, and not trying to impose their values on other people. So I think that's probably enough. The rest of the uh, the this particular unit went into sort of the the history of Australian Aboriginals and the Torres Strait Islanders and also the um, the Maori um, peoples of New Zealand, uh, but this not really psychology related. It's more sort of history. So I think I might um, skip those. So next episode is going to be on topic nine, which uh, from memories. The psychology of personality, and that will conclude the intro to psych two unit. And then I'll move on to the uh, the next unit I did last trimester, which is on critical thinking. So until next time, bye for now.